Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 11th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Alan Moore. Alan's the CEO and a co-founder with me of XY Planning Network, a turnkey financial planning platform that shows financial advisors how to build a profitable business to serve Gen X and Gen Y clientele by providing financial planning services to those younger clients under a monthly subscription fee business model. But the reason I've invited Alan to the podcast, though, actually has nothing to do with XYPN and everything to do with his own fascinating path as a financial advisor, business owner, and entrepreneur. Because Alan started working out as a planning associate straight out of getting a master's degree in financial planning, only to realize in about six months that the job wasn't the right fit. So he joined another advisory firm, only to get fired from that job in another six months because it was an even worse fit. And so in this episode, Alan talks about how these challenges ultimately led him to change his entire views on entrepreneurialism and starting a business itself to the point that he views starting a business as actually being a safer and more diversified way to generate income than being an employee in an otherwise stable job. And that in turn led him to start his own advisory firm at the age of 25 and then later the XY Planning Network. We also talk a bit about how Alan got his own advisory business off the ground in the early years as a young planner, what he sees as the true purpose of financial planning, and the challenges that arise in running a rapidly growing business. And be certain to listen to the end when Alan shares the struggles that made running a successful business no longer enjoyable for him personally, and the change that he made to make the business fun again for himself. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Alan Moore. Welcome, Alan Moore, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, man. I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited, too. This is an interesting interview for me because, as I'm sure at least a few listeners know, we are business partners together in, in XY Planning Network and also co-host another podcast called XYPN Radio, although that for, for that one, you're the primary host, I'm the secondary, so this is kind of fun to turn the tables a bit. The reason I'm excited to have you on the podcast doesn't actually really have anything to do with with working with you necessarily. It's uh, it's just I think you have a really cool story and a journey from you know, starting in as a graduate student, coming into financial planning, working in the business, starting your own firm at 25, becoming an entrepreneur again and, and founding XYPN. So, I'm excited just to take people through that journey. Frankly, a, a lot of stuff you've done already for for still being a young guy. You're not yet 30? Correct. So I've turned 30 in April. So when we go through this, it always freaks me out when I realize how much has happened in the period of time because then it makes me like reassess my whole view on life. Yes. Like you have, you have, you have a lot of – at your current pace of iteration, you have a lot of years left to do things. <laughs> So, so can you start us off with just a little of your background? You know, who, who, who's Alan Moore? Where are you from? Yeah, so I'm homeschool kid from the south, from the hills of Alabama. My folks decided to homeschool us because we were in a really bad school district. And I actually, especially recently, have started to realize how much of an impact that had on me. You know, I've always known I didn't have the ability to like tolerate stupid people. 
you know, my, my friends always said that was because I didn't go to public school and learn tolerance. You know, the, the other piece too was that it, on a positive side, was that it sort of ingrained in me the, the personality traits, I think, and just the skill sets that have come in handy. I certainly missed out on a few things, but I think it helped me out in the long run. But went to the University of Georgia where I was going to be a pharmacist because they you could be a doctor in six years. And, uh, you know, it's a good paying job and uh, I guess interesting work. I don't know what I was thinking because, you know, when I really started thinking about it, I was like, I'm going to sit behind a desk at a CVS or a Walgreens for my entire life counting pills. Like, I don't know what I was thinking, but it sounded like a really good plan at the time because, you know, it's what they told us. Go get a good job. You'll get a good right, career. Go, go get something that's got, you know, good income potential and stable earning power, right? Like probably going to have pharmacists for a long time because, you know, you've got to be careful about having the robots hand out drugs. Yeah. And, and, you know, underneath that was like, be sure you have a job that your parents can explain to their friends, you know, like, because when you're in, in high school, I guess you think about the, your big careers, you're being an accountant, a lawyer, a doctor, a pharmacist, like no one says like, I'm going to go be a commercial real estate salesperson. You know, you don't go to school for that because it's not a popular career path, I guess. So like pharmacists reasonably checked the box for you. Yeah, it hit all the the things that you're supposed to look for in a career. So I went, you know, to University of Georgia, got started, hit culture shock really fast. Uh, come to find out you can't just like write anything you want. If you offend your teachers, then they will just fail you whether you wrote a good paper or not, which happened in my first, my first semester because the teacher said, don't write about this topic because they didn't agree with it politically. So I wrote about it multiple times, I ended up sort of crawling out of that, out of that hole. But the, the class that I took was chemistry 101, which most people take and pass with flying colors, I guess. And it just did not click for me. We got to naming compounds and I was like, nope, I'm out. Like, this is just, this makes no sense. Five and a half more years of that then plus actually doing it for a career was you you were out by Chem 101. Yeah, it didn't take long. It, uh, it it Funny enough, like I spent seven years in college, I guess, by the time I got through grad school. And uh, it was the only class I ever had to withdraw from. But it was bad. It was not just so not bad. because you were failing, just because you were miserable. Both. I was failing. <laughs> Let's be honest. I took the second test. It was like, I don't know, I got like a 30% on it. And it was just so, it just was not the way my brain works. So I sort of had to go back and say, okay, how, how am I going to pick a career? And so I did what most college kids did. And I put in some parameters. Uh, one, no life sciences. So I was not going to pick a major that required a life science. And I took foreign language in high school and was very bad at it. And so no foreign language. So at the University of Georgia with 40,000 students, there are a total of eight majors that do not require a life science or foreign language to graduate. And I picked two of the eight. <laughs> and I wish that wasn't a true story, but it absolutely is. And and so which two did you pick? Was one financial planning at that point? It started with consumer economics because I, I saw econ in the business school, took some classes there. It was really cool, but the business school had a lot of requirements and just other coursework that didn't look like fun. And so then I discovered consumer economics, which sounds a lot like economics. I did not know until I got there that it was. But it, was, but it didn't have all that businessy stuff. Yeah, you didn't care the businessy stuff. It was like, you know, household economics. Like, it'll be so cool. And then I realized it was actually home economics. They had just rebranded to consumer econ because no one would take home ec classes. And all the football players were there. Long-winded story to say that I ended up taking an elective uh, called uh, Intro to Personal Finance. 
And I thought I was taking sort of a how to do your own, you know, financial, your own financial plan. So how to do your own cash flow and budgeting and all of that. Right. So like, like personal intro to find personal finance kind of. Yeah, that, that's what I thought it was. Come to find out it was the intro fundamentals class into the CFP program at UGA. No one bothered to correct me. Uh, it was like the second year. I think I was in the second starting class. There was one year before me and then I got started. Okay, because the, the, so the financial planning program itself had just showed up in UGA. Exactly. Yeah, so Dr. Lance Palmer had, had brought it to UGA, I think in 2005, which was my freshman year of college, and then got started, I think, in 2006 or early 2007. So but I took that intro class, quickly realized it was not what I thought it was, but I just fell in love with it because it was exactly what I was looking for, but didn't really know it. It was numbers, but it was like, but it wasn't an equation. So it's one of the things I loved about financial planning was that it's a puzzle that doesn't have the, there, there's so many answers. So my dad used to say that math is the perfect science because there's always one right answer. He did not tell me about calculus. So that was true until calculus. But, you know, there's one right answer. But in financial planning, there's not. There's there's infinite possibilities that we get to play with. All of these levers we get to pull to create a scenario that's individualized for a client that helps them achieve what they want out of life. And, and I realized that that's really what financial planning was, was that we got to figure out what a client wanted to accomplish with their life and then pull all these little levers and, and put all the pieces together to give them a plan that helped them accomplish that. That's actually a cool framing for financial planning. Like I don't feel like I don't feel like we spend a lot of time framing financial planning as I mean, I guess we sort of say like we're we're gonna help clients achieve their goals and then figure out what to do to to get them there. But the the way you just framed it to me is is interesting. Like we're we're gonna help clients just kind of live the life that they want and pull the levers that they need to pull in order to get there. Yeah. And I, I truly believe it. And I, at, I guess in college, I was sort of beginning to see this. And I was very fortunate at the University of Georgia, we had uh, Dr. Joe Getz, who had his master's in psychology. And so he brought in this kind of concept of financial therapy and blending of psychology and money just sort of a different perspective on planning than I think a lot of the programs get. We also weren't in the business school, so we didn't have business school oversight, which at UGA was a benefit. I know there are many top programs in business schools. Yeah, I, I realized that we're one of the few professions, and, and I'm not even sure that I can name any others, that we actually, like the whole point of our job is to figure out what a client wants out of their life. Like what is their great life? What are the things they want to accomplish to be fulfilled? And then we use their money as a tool to accomplish that dream. And when you really dig in with a client, I mean, yes, it can be basic, you know, it can be the standard. I want to travel more, spend more time with my family, you know, start a business and that sort of thing. But, you know, it could also be a client that wants to leave a concert hall to their alma mater college. And how do they do that? How do they leave a $10 million building when they don't have $10 million? Well, I worked at a firm where we actually figured out how to do that. You know, for I think half a million dollars left a $10 million foundation that there was just this amazing thing that helped them accomplish their life. And, and not very many professions have the honor of being able to actually say, we help clients live great lives, you know? And so that's, I think, why I was so attracted to it. And again, that it, we think of financial planning as this like simple equation, you know, spend less, save more, retire. And it's just going to be really easy. And anybody in financial planning knows that is not how life works. It's not how financial planning works. And so it's this cool, like, 
malleable puzzle we get to sort of play with and make our own or make the client's own. And that's what's so fun about it, I guess. Well, and it, it strikes me, certainly in the in the modern discussion about you know, the rise of the robo-advisors or just technology and automation in general, this, this question of are we at some point going to get automated out of existence? When financial planning boils down to a math problem, it boils down to something a computer can solve. I mean, it's just literally like it's, it's a math equation and solve it. When you frame it in in a sense of the purpose of financial planning is to help clients live their great lives, which of course naturally invites the follow-up question, well, how do you define great life? And the answer is it varies by the client. And frankly, even for a client, it tends to vary and change over time as, as we go through our lives and life happens. And so – to me, like that, that's an interesting way to frame. Like, this is why the client facing part of financial planning can't get replaced by computers and, and robots anytime soon because that, that whole f- discovery process and conversation with the client about what would a great life be for you? What does that look like? What, what is it, you know, like helping people actually figure out what their real goal is and not just the, Hey, it sounds neat to say, what if I had a million dollars when I retired at age 65 is a much more complex and nuanced thing that a computer can't solve because it's a personal question. It's a personal conversation because I don't think most people can actually answer that very effectively if you just said to them like, hey, define your great life. Go. <laughs> right. And and then do it quantitatively so the computer can figure out what you're trying to do. Pick it, pick it from this drop-down list that the computer questionnaire has. Which, which <laughs> of these is your great life? Would you like to A, B, C, or D? Is there a day – and I'm sure there's like somebody listening to this podcast that's an artificial intelligence genius and they're like, oh, you guys have no idea what's coming. That may be true. But by the time that happens, uh, there's not going to be any other jobs for us either because just the complexity of the human psyche and the human brain, especially when it comes to money and just all the emotion and issues that, that we, you know, have with money. If you work true, real financial planners, not the, you know, life insurance salesman or the, you know, because we can outsource that or, you know, we can put that in algorithm and not the, I do, you know, low cost, ETF model portfolios, like we can put that to an algorithm, right? But if the real financial planning, if you can get rid of us, there, I don't I don't honestly know what jobs are left at that point. <laughs> it's going to be a really short list. Let's just not worry about it. So how did it go from there? You found your CFP class partially accidentally sophomore year, but I think you, you ultimately said you were in college for seven years. So uh, how did that how did that play out? I need to do the math. So I started in 2005. I graduated in 2010. So I guess I was there for five and a half years because I started in the fall and graduated in, at the end of December. But yeah, so so got started in financial planning. It was an easy dual major just because of the way the electives ro- uh, rolled out. So I got my undergrad in consumer economics and my undergrad in family financial planning, which qualified us to sit for the CFP. And up until about March of 2009, I had this grand plan of getting a job. Come to find out, March of 2009. So you started in the fall of 2005, six, seven, eight. So, so you're so you're supposed to graduate the summer of 2009. Yeah, great time to graduate. For anybody that doesn't get that sarcasm, look it up. No, that was 
And so there were jobs available, but what I knew was that the class before us, every single senior before us had their job locked in for May before the January semester even started. I mean, like five and six months out, they were already recruited and nobody in my class had any jobs. Six months out from your graduation is literally the depths of the financial crisis and the markets are moving up and down by eight to 10% a day. You've got it. And that was kind of combined with the fact that I had a mentor, Dr. Getz, there at UGA, and he ended up being my major professor. And I saw his life, and and I loved the way it looked. And so, Dr. Getz is a professor, uh, you know, of financial planning, but he also co-owns a financial planning firm with his wife, with Lindsay, and she does. She actually runs the firm and does the day to day, and he sort of shows up from time to time and does awesome work with his PhD and brings some credibility. And but he gets to do planning. But he does actually have to run the firm. and But he was able to do both. And so I was like, that's awesome. So why don't I stay for grad school? And so I went and I talked to the professors. And I was like, hey, you know, maybe I should stay for grad school. And, and they said, well, we'd love to have you. But, you know, the deadline's in two days. So I signed up for the GRE the next day. Did not do as well as I would have hoped. Uh, they have you write an essay in notepad. Notepad with no, like, red squiggly lines <laughs> Or when you misspell a word. Yes. Well, part of the point of assessing people's natural talents is to assess the non-computer augmented version of them. Yeah. Well, I, I grew up with Microsoft Word. I didn't know there was any other system. But what's interesting is that actually ended up playing into my career path. The fact that I totally bombed the writing portion of the GRE. So I think I got a two out of five, which basically meant like I could spell my name correctly, I think. Did fine on the math and English, I guess, or the comprehensive language side. So anyway, so get started, stay for my master's in financial planning. I was really passionate about teaching more than research. And so they let me teach a class or or actually two classes. So I taught the capstone class as well as a technology class in our program. And I sort of started to get into the world of academia, which is very political. There's a lot of underhanded favors and you got to know the right people and asking permission from the right folks. And the world of entrenched bureaucracy. Right. I mean, that's kind of the dynamic for, for academia. You know, if you're, if you're going to allow professors that get tenure and then are unfireable for the next 40 years, like you're going to tend to get a little bit of entrenched bureaucracy out of that. Just a little bit. And so, you know, basically the mistake I made was moving my desk six inches to the wrong direction. Just realize that I had crossed into someone's territory that I wasn't supposed to cross into and not a very interesting story. But what it turned out was I realized the, just the politics and the drama. And I was just not built for that. Right about that same time, UGA historically had made it so that you could get your PhD in financial planning, which was sort of the path that I decided I was on. And I had applied to the PhD program, but you could get your master's and PhD at the same time. So instead of having to write a master's thesis and then sort of start over with your PhD, you could just go straight through, which worked well for me because at UGA, I had taken, by the time I was done with grad school, I'd taken all the classes. There were no other classes to take. So if I just got my master's, I was going to have to leave Athens, go to probably Texas Tech and get my PhD. And so I was just on this path where I was going to go all the way through. So there was this routine meeting where the professors got together to say, yes, Alan can be a PhD student. And right before they voted, someone decided to reevaluate the rules for minimum qualifications to be eligible for the straight through PhD program. So they reevaluated the numbers, wrote up the new numbers. And my GRE score didn't qualify. So your GRE score 
was fine to actually get you into the master's program. But then when you tried to add the PhD, then then you got flagged. Well, I was already in the what we called sort of the PhD program, the straight through thing. It wasn't this like super official. It was kind of a weird deal. And, and I was sort of following the footsteps of Dr. C, now Martin C., who's out of Kansas State, who had done this. So I was sort of following in his footsteps. I actually couldn't even tell you if I was a master's student or a PhD student at that moment. But it was a shoe-in. I was definitely going to be considered at that moment, after that meeting, a PhD student. And they came out and said, so here's the deal. We changed the rules and you don't qualify anymore. So you're now a master's student and you can't get your PhD here. You stepped on someone's political toes and it came back to you. <laughs> I don't think so. I actually think it was a legitimate, hey, we need to evaluate these rules, standardize it. Had I studied for the GRE and actually had a couple of weeks of prep time and focused on it, that sort of thing, it could have been a different story, but I didn't know it mattered. You know, I needed to get into the program. I didn't know I needed this higher score. So I kind of shot myself in the foot inadvertently suddenly was sort of back to ground zero where it was just like, okay, so now what do I do to get my PhD? It's going to take me four more years than I thought. I not only have to write a dissertation, I also have to write a master's thesis now. So is this really the direction that I want to go? And I decided it wasn't. Decided academia probably wasn't for me. And I was just a tad ticked. This would have been early 2010, I guess. So I'm sort of finishing up my first year of grad school. You limped along one year further out from the financial crisis than actually trying to apply for a job like in March of 2009 as the market hit its all-time low. Yep. That was pretty much it. <laughs> I happened to come across a scholarship from an organization I had not heard of called NAPFA. Oh, I think I've heard of them now. Yes. And I, I didn't know who they were as a student. Uh, we didn't do a ton of practice management work and things like that. So they had a scholarship program where the South region was running a scholarship for conference attendance. They pay your way to come. So write an essay about why you want to be a fee-only financial planner, you know, what NAPFA means to you and that sort of thing. So I did a whole bunch of research on what that all meant. And then, you know, sort of clued in. And I guess I could take a step back. I actually did an internship at Smith Barney, which was really the reason I knew I wanted to be fee-only. I just didn't know that's what it was called. I just knew it was called not Smith Barney. Okay. Um, not, not sales environment. Okay. <laughs> not sales. Um, and so I applied for a scholarship and they actually denied me and said, we actually are out of basically South Region scholarships. So they kicked my application up to National, who gave me one of their scholarships. Total luck. And it's just amazing when you look back and you start putting some of these pieces together on just how fortunate I was, but also just... Some of it was fortune. Some of it was just hard work. Some of it was just didn't know any better and, and just ended up there. Well, there's always a little of that luck favors the prepared. This is very true. Yeah, I actually applied, right? So, I mean, I got lucky that I got it, but I actually did apply. And for any of the students out there, no one else applies to the scholarship program. So, if you see any out there from TD Ameritrade or NAPA or FPA, by all means, apply because you're probably the only one actually sending in an application. Just a, just a note. So I got accepted. So I got the scholarship and I started looking around and saw this guy who was going to be at uh, the NAPFA conference and he was hiring an associate advisor. So I started doing some research and his name was Rick Kaler and, and he said that he was one of the pioneers in financial therapy. And I was like, oh, good. Another, you know, con artist. I know the guy who's the founder of financial therapy. He wrote our textbook. So I went back to the textbook written by Rick Kaler. So quickly put my foot in my mouth and met with him at this at the NAPFA conference in Chicago. He was hiring an associate advisor. Now, I walked in saying, look, 
I can, I'm not graduating till December. It's May. So I've got eight months. So I have to convince this guy to wait for me because like, I love the concept of financial therapy. Working for him will be awesome. Like I've read all of his books. So I walked into the interview prepared to convince him he needed to wait for me. What I didn't know was that Rick has a very challenging time recruiting to Rapid City, South Dakota. And he fully expected for it to take a year for him to find someone. So me saying I could start in May or in January was actually like five months ahead of schedule. Your your, your eight-month timeline was fast for his expectations. It was. And I do want to say for anyone who listened to the first episode with Rick Kaler, I got multiple emails after it. I was not the one that quit along with like five other people. I came in after that. I was not part of the coup. That was not really a coup. For those who are just have dialed in more recently the podcast, so Alan is talking about Rick Kaler, who actually joined us for episode one of the of the podcast. So you can go back and listen to him if you want, kidsis.com uh, slash one. And one of the stories that Rick had shared amongst many about his challenges of trying to hire in Rapid City, South Dakota is that he had a he had a moment a couple of years ago where he lost five of his six staff members in the span of 60 days through some combination of like people quitting and two people with health events and just like a whole bunch of crazy bad stuff that that hit him in the business all at once and so out of sheer coincidence Alan spent some time there as well but not not during that particular turbulent time. Right. Yeah, that was after me. He had he had pulled things back together, righted the ship, and then I came in. But so what I was prepared with was I knew he wasn't hi- or that he was hiring now, or at least I thought I did. And so I, I came and said, hey, look, like I will come to South Dakota for a nine-week internship slash job interview. No promises. You don't have to give me a job afterwards. Please pay me enough to like come out there. Luckily, Rick also owns a property management company, so he just hooked me up with a studio apartment nearby, which was awesome. So was this was this like for the summer coming up because you were meeting him in May, but you weren't going to graduate until December, and and so this was in the in the meantime. Yep. So this was would have been mid May, is or you know is usually when NAPFAS conferences, and I said I'll come out whenever. You just let me know I've cleared my summer for you. And he bit, you know, and, and he called me back, you know, like two days later and said, okay, you know, uh, pack your bags. Like, how fast can you be out here? Because as you've learned in retrospect, the fact that you said you were willing to go to South Dakota was actually enough for him to give you a, at least an initial chance. Yeah, and it was low risk for him, you know, and come to find out, again, he he has trouble recruiting to South Dakota. So for me to say, look, I'll show up, I think I asked for $11 an hour or something like that, just because like I, I literally just budgeted out what will it cost me in terms of move out there, nine weeks of rent, because there's not a lot of places doing nine week rentals outside of hotel rooms, you know, food, that sort of thing and drive back. Like what, what's the bare bones? And so I just said, you know, 40 hours a week, 11 bucks an hour, 10 bucks an hour, whatever the number was. And he said, okay. And, you know, it, he was impressed that uh, one that I was willing to do that, that I had read all of his books so some of them I read before I knew I was applying, the other ones I read after. Uh, and those are the things that I think just, I don't know, I didn't think anything of it. I was like, you know, if I'm interviewing with this guy, I need to know him. And it frustrated me when we were interviewing candidates while I was there. And they'd be like, Rick Kaler, had, he wrote some books. I'm like, did you Google the boss, like the guy that started the firm and bother realizing that like he wrote four books? Don't come in here acting, you know, that don't know anything about financial therapy. He he like coined the term. What are you doing? And I think there actually is a good message there for like maybe any 
students, younger planners, I guess really anyone that that's looking to do a job change, perhaps at some point is thinking about an interview process, like this stuff matters. Like do, do your, you know, do your homework and due diligence. Like you only get one chance to make a good first impression and you're know, doing a little bit of homework on who you're going to be interviewing with to show that you really actually know their situation and what they've done and can talk competently about it. Like it reflects well on you. Frankly, most people like the ego stroke of knowing that you've like read their stuff and paid attention to it if they've written things. So like it makes you look good. It makes them feel good. If you make them feel good, then they like you. Like it's, you know, sort of personal uh, dynamics and rapport building 101. And, and yeah, I've gone through the same thing and in, in hiring for a couple of different of my businesses over the years that it's, it's always fascinating to me the, the split between, you know, people that just clearly do a little bit of their homework and, and those who don't. And, you know, if you're one of the ones that don't, you show so even if you're otherwise a strong capable candidate you show so badly compared to someone that clearly did their homework that it's it's one of the primary reasons you probably get screened out early on and quickly and if like if you keep wondering why why do my interviews not go further or why do my job applications not go further this easily could be it you know i know people that get frustrated and they're like i'm i'm having trouble finding a job so i just keep applying for more and more and i'm applying for so many that i can't like read up on all of them because it's too many. That's the problem. If you shoot too wide, you can't build rapport with anybody that you're actually reaching out to and you're just going to apply for more jobs and they're all going to fail. Yeah. The beauty of financial planning is uh, almost every single firm out there can afford to hire you. We have pretty good profit margins. Like most firms are not sitting there like, you know, on the verge of bankruptcy, especially in the independent space. So like if you make a good impression and you make the case for yourself and show them why you're the right person, you'd be surprised how many firms will open their doors and will make you a job offer. But, you know, especially for if we have any college students listening or very early in your career, you know what all your buddies are doing while you're listening to a podcast or going to FPA career day? They're partying, right? That, that's what we do in college and, and partied a lot in college too. But your friends would rather party than actually put in the effort. So it's not like you have to be the most knowledgeable person in the world. Just be better than the meatheads that we're used to coming into our office and interviewing for positions. Like just put in a little bit of effort and it is amazing how far that will go for you. But again, I, I didn't know all this. I just sort of, I wasn't necessarily doing it intentionally. And I don't want to claim to have had some like secret sauce that that I was pursuing and I was genuinely interested in it. It wasn't fake. I, I loved what he was doing. I had a ton of respect for him. And when I met him, we just had a really good rapport. And a lot of that was because I was very much a mini-me of Rick. Now, I was the mini-me of Rick pre-20 years of therapy training. So the Rick you had on the podcast and the Alan now, not quite in line. And, and I don't mean that in a critical way. He's just done some amazing work in that space and really helping to, to uncover that side of his brain. But I was he saw in me himself, you know, 30 years ago, whenever he was hiring me. So I'll fast forward, went to South Dakota for nine weeks, did the internship, made a good impression. And at the end of the nine weeks, he offered me a position to start in January. And so I went back to school. I only had one class remaining, I believe. I was teaching a class. And then I had to decide between the CFP or my writing my thesis. So one of the great things that, again, pure accident was that I had my undergrad in financial planning. So I was qualified to sit for the CFP while still in school, whereas most CFP students have to wait until after graduation. I was actually eligible in grad school based on my undergraduate degree. 
I was actually able to take the CFP exam in November back in the day when it was a Scantron test and took two entire days. For all you lucky people now, you don't even know. But anyway, so I took it in November and then, but also didn't find out I had passed the exam until after I had moved to South Dakota and had a uh, pay raise contingent upon my passing. <laughs> so <laughs> that was, was really good news when you got it. It was. I got the little, you know, piece of paper with the with the fireworks. I just felt like it should be a big party. But anyway, so got to work, kind of took on the the you know, associate advisor role. We had an investment guru on staff that was just an Excel whiz. So she sort of handled the investments, sort of the, I guess, investment associate. And I was the planning associate. Sat in all the meetings, which I realized now was such a gift that I was able to sit in. I literally sat in every single client meeting from day one of my internship. And then that followed through, you know, to the job. That's an interesting dynamic, right? Because a lot of firms don't do that. So when when you're sitting in on a client meeting as a literally fresh out of college, don't even have your CFP yet, don't even know if you passed your course yet, like what do you, what do you do in those meetings like, as that paraplanner person? What what did what were you tasked with doing? So what I love about Rick and the reason I am where I am today is because he saw something in my personality, and again, probably just saw himself. That he he clued in very quickly that I was a personality that I if I wanted to find out how to swim, if I you know if I'm not sure if I know how to swim, I just dive into the deep end and figure it out. And he let me do that in client meetings with multi million dollar clients. So for instance, this was 2010. Uh, go, well, I guess 2011 now. And he would so this was Roth conversion time. And so clients would ask questions about Roth conversions, and he'd go, "I'm not sure, Alan. Do you know the answer?" I remember the first time he did that, I was like, is this a trick question? Do you do you say the answer? But I have no ability to hold my tongue. So I blurt out the answer and we move on. And he would just do that. He would prompt me in the middle of meeting, say, you know, hey, what do you think about this? What's the do you know the answer, the technical answer to this? Were you right? Were you wrong? Like, did he ask it and then correct you if you ended out not knowing? <laughs> like, you know, I tended to have the right answer with very little tact. Which I think is actually an interesting point, right? Because true for so many students that are are coming in today, well, some of them are probably more tactful than you were. But I think sometimes we underestimate how much people absorb in their CFP classes. Like for a lot of us who've been practicing for a long time, you know, you, you're trying to remember some Roth rules that you you haven't actually looked up for five or ten or fifteen or twenty years since you studied for the CFP and you got a student that just spent years immersed in this stuff. So they, they tend to know it. They may not be the best at communicating it yet. That's a, that's a learning opportunity, but they know their stuff pretty well. Yeah. Rick will tell you that when I got hired, I knew more technically about financial planning than he did. I mean, he relied on me from a technical standpoint to answer technical questions about financial planning because I was so fresh, you know, again, five and a half years of you know multiple degrees and we actually had a clinic at Georgia we worked with clients while we I was still in school so I did have a little bit of of that side I just sat for the CFP so there were things you know that that he would say Alan's you know and and he would tell clients Alan's smarter than I am when it comes to financial planning topics now was that true I don't know that's what he would tell people probably not but what I was a very raw it helps them build trust in you yes when you're it, it did. in the meeting though 
I never had a single problem with a client going, what do you know? Or, you know, where's your gray hair? How many market cycles have you seen? Or any of the, the things that, you know, people will, people will say about that. But I was a very raw talent. I will say if talent is even the right word. I had the technical skills, but I did not have the art and the finesse of financial planning. And Rick let me learn that on his clients. He really did. And, and he let me loose. And, and when I would do an, an analysis, he let me present it. He let me talk through it. And then after the meeting, and I recommend all planners do this, after the meeting, we talked for five to 10 minutes and sort of caught up with each other. I'm like, he would give me some things. You did this well, could have worded this better. You know, could you see how this would be insulting to a client when you frame something in that manner? Because I would tend to just say things like, basically, you're an idiot. You know, here's the answer. I'm like, you know, could you see how a client might not take that well? <laughs> might not appreciate that. And he actually let me correct him sometimes. And or, I mean, anytime I, anytime I was willing to, but, uh, you know, say like, hey, you know, you said this and, and I, I don't think that's what you meant to say. Like, you know, that's really good feedback. And, and we had a two-way communication street. Say all of that to say that Rick and I got along great. We were having a lot of fun, but sort of coming out of that story that you mentioned about having lost a bunch of staff members sort of rebuilding the firm, the team that he had was not necessarily on the same page as I was in terms of where the firm was going. So I came in high energy, 23 years old, didn't know, you know, didn't know any better and just said, let's grow the heck out of this thing. Cause you know, I'm here to be a successor. I'm here to buy this firm. So I want this firm to be worth something. So let's grow it, you know? And, and up until that point, Rick was, everything was organic you know, one client a month was the goal, but we probably did six to eight clients a year in actuality. And what I ran into was a staff that we did not see eye to eye on the future of the firm. And uh, it made for a very toxic work environment. And it wasn't intentional and, and I don't hold any ill will against any of those folks, but we just didn't, we just clashed personality wise. And so about six months in, so about July, I sat down with Rick and I said, man, I don't think I can do this anymore. And he said, yeah, I've been feeling like one of you have to go and I'm going to let y'all make that decision. I said, okay, well, it's me because, you know, ultimately he had loyalties to both of us and making that decision would have put him in a really bad position. And, you know, it may have put me in a bad position too, but I think it worked out the way it needed to. And so I said, okay, you know, I'll start looking for other positions. Can I keep working here until I find something? And he said, yep, take as long as you need. And the truth is, he was my reference for all of the firms I applied for going forward. He talked to every single potential employer and I asked him, tell him the truth, you know, tell him what, who I am, because I don't want to run into this situation again. And, and this was July, so like six, six, seven months in. Yeah. People talk about like, I've been with a firm five years. I'm like, I can't, I don't know what I was doing five years ago, but it was, certainly wasn't with this firm. Yeah, so it, I was there a total of 10 months because I left in October. But like I said, he, he actually talked to some folks and, and I have since talked with folks that did not give me a job because they were smarter than others that, you know, I wasn't the right fit there for their firm. And, and he was helpful. He was honest and, and said good things, said bad things, but he remains a friend today. But I ended up getting a position with a firm called Financial Service Group out of uh, Racine, Wisconsin. So owned by Mike Halbrick, who was actually in a study group with Rick and Marty Kurtz from the Planning Center. They sort of were buddies and they had opened up or that this position had opened up. And so I applied and Rick encouraged me to and flew out to Racine and, and was offered an associate advisor position there. And so I 
packed my bags and drove from South Dakota to Wisconsin, which is not a short trip. Got started, started as a similar, in a similar position, associate advisor, fee-only RIA. We had about $150 million under management or somewhere around there. How big was the team? Like, were you the planning associate or there, yeah, there were, were two leads, me and one other associate slash assistant advisor and then two staff. So, you know, a total of six of us in the office. So pretty small. I guess that's the actually the largest company I'd ever worked for. So yeah, so so got there. And within just a couple of weeks, I knew I had a problem. Uh, Angie Herbers one time, I, I don't mean to misquote her if I do, but uh, she said, or she quoted research, I believe, that said uh, with, an employee knows within two weeks if a position is long-term or not. Like they're, it's going to be a good fit or not. They know within the first two weeks. And that was my experience. I walked in. It was like, whoa, this is not what I thought I was signing up for. Because the the job duties were like you weren't doing the planning you thought or or they like, – Yeah, what, there, what was there were two fitting? pieces. Uh, one, at this firm, they sort of had the structure. Level one was lead planner. Level two was associate planner. Level three was assistant planner. And I walked in as a – very arrogant 24-year-old that thought I knew everything because I worked for Rick Kaler and I have a master's degree in the CFP. So, of course, I know everything. I walked in at what I would consider a level one personality. I'm a lead planner personality. Put me on the front lines. Let me go get us business. Let me be the planner. Because even if you're not, your personality style is I need to swim in the deep end and fail at it. Let's figure it out. But I was paid as a level two. So, I was an associate advisor, which is fine. I quickly realized I was doing the work of a level three. So it was a level one personality getting paid like a level two, doing the job duties of a level three. And that caused so much conflict from, I mean, mainly because I was just bored. So, I mean, the irony was like, they tried to move. I mean, I'm imagining it from their perspective, you know, Rick's telling them that you're a strong outgoing personality and need opportunities. So, so like, They've only got a job for a three, but they're trying to get, they're trying to move you up to a two to give you this opportunity. And you're miserable because they couldn't jump you to a one. Well, and I, I was miserable because it was the level three, the, that assistant level job duties that just drove me up a wall. So, you know, I had to call 150 clients every single quarter to schedule meetings, you know, and because we didn't have meeting scheduling software. And I managed the paper trade tickets for every single trade that we did. Just things like that, that one, just systems and processes that, that needed a little bit of updating, but just the work was was grueling. And I have learned about myself, I don't live in pain well. And so if I'm in pain, I need to make a change because if I don't, I'll explode. And I just, I was just boiling. Because you just didn't want to do rote repetitive tasks kind no, of stuff. The, yeah, the, the job duties were just, they, they just made me want to just pull my hair out. I mean, it was just awful. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to be out talking to, to folks, trying to find new business and, and being the lead planner. And that opportunity just wasn't there. And that was sort of the second piece to this. And I don't ever mean to imply that Mike lied to me, but Mike is a visionary personality. He can just paint a beautiful picture of the future. And he had this sort of model of franchising the business. So Alan come in, learn the business over the couple of years. And then, you know, you can open your own franchise, a financial service group, wherever you want, and you'll be the lead planner of that franchise. And it was just this beautiful vision. Yeah. That's what we said as vision people. That it was awesome. And so I came in thinking like, okay, this is legitimately a two to year, two to three year thing. And I quickly realized that it was more like a 15 to 20 year thing. Cause the firm just wasn't growing fast enough to be able to create that opportunity. Yeah. And, and it was something they'd been working on for a very long time and just didn't, 
it was just a very slow movement. And ultimately, they needed me just to be there to take care of their clients. And so again, I think Mike sort of had this vision and I got sold on the vision. When I got there, I think the vision and the reality were disconnected. And I just assumed they were connected. So I started there in October of 2011. So with Rick 10 months, started there in October. In April, just after my birthday, came into the boss's office and Mike said, you know, it was a Friday afternoon and, and Mike politely asked me to not come back on Monday. So I was there about six months. And, got, and just got outright fired. Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't that I did anything illegal or anything like that. It was just very obvious that the tension was too much, that we weren't working well together. We butted heads because we were both sort of strong personalities and yeah, and, and again, sort of the conflict of the job duties and all of that combined just created a toxic atmosphere. So you've graduated from college and you've been out for not even 18 months and you're now out two jobs. Yep. You know, and so I didn't know what to do at that point. Fortunately, they had actually already paid for me to attend the NAPFA conference in Chicago. So it was just south of where I was. So I think that was two or three weeks later. So I dropped down there started talking to a bunch of different firms. I probably had legitimately 20 conversations with firms that were hiring at some level. I had gotten myself established with Napfa Genesis, so most of the planners there knew me. I had come a couple of times. So we at least I was I was a familiar face. So I could spark up conversation, find out if they were hiring. And the conversations were just like depressing. And not because they weren't awesome opportunities, but it just it sounded too much like what I had been through. And so like for instance there's one planner who I mean, he was totally sold on me. And he said, Alan, you come in and we're going to grow this firm together over the next five years. We're going to double cash flow, double profits, and then you can buy me out and you can buy the firm with the profits. And I was like, so I'm going to work for the next three to five years to double the purchase price of your firm? Like that doesn't sound like a good deal. Like how about how about you give me half the equity now in an owner's note with a five-year balloon payment or something like that? So that I have equity now. So when we double it, my equity doubles. And he was like, are you crazy? <laughs> Which at the time I'm thinking like, no, this is a stupid deal. Now as a business owner, I understand why he shunned my my offer. It just wasn't, those conversations just didn't feel right to me. And so I, I went home after the conference and said, you know what? My dad always told me that the definition of insanity was doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And I've done this twice and maybe I'm the problem maybe it's me, <laughs> you know, maybe I'm just a terrible pair planner and I need to be a lead planner. You know, who's going to give a 25 year old freshly minted CFP who can't hold a job in financial planning, a lead planner person that, you know, a lead planner job. And the answer is no one. And so I, I really started doing some reflection on what do I really want here? And, and I sort of saw two routes. One being I go get a, a job as an associate advisor in an RIA. And there were plenty of those positions out there. Make my, I don't know, $60,000 a year, whatever associate advisors made at the time and be fine. Maybe I'll be happy. Maybe not. Or what if I started my own firm? Like what, what would that look like? And if I start my own firm, I sort of have two options uh, for how it goes. I either succeed and I'm successful, yay, everybody's happy, or I fail. And and what is failure? Because when I think of failure, I think of like living under a bridge, unable to like feed my child is failure. Failure in that route is I go get a job as an associate advisor at an RAA making $60,000. I can go get a job and work for the man or I can try this on my own for a while because the fallback is still going to be I can go get a job and work for the man. You've got it. 
And, and suddenly I had this sort of change in perception of job risk. So growing up, and, and I think we're all sort of taught that starting a business is very risky. It's safe to go get a job. Go get a job. You get a 401k. and Good job, steady income, right? What every parent wishes for their child. All of that. And, and what I realized was that in a moment, a person that, you know, that I had no control over took 100% of my income from me by firing me. They took 100% of it. And yet, when I look at entrepreneurship and I think about the risk associated with entrepreneurship, if the worst case scenario is that I go get the job that I was going to get anyway, but I remove the barrier that one person controls my life and controls all my income. So if I have 20 clients and one of them fires me, then they have taken 5% of my income, not 100%. And in that moment, I sort of Again, I sort of rewired the way I was thinking about risk and entrepreneurship and realized that maybe the risky choice was going and depending on a single person for my income. And maybe the diversified choice was, you know, and the lower risk side was diversify my income stream by having multiple clients or multiple jobs, multiple businesses, whatever that is, so that I could weather financial storms a little better. And that's what led me to, to start my own RIA. I think it's a fascinating framing this idea this idea that the the risky path is having a job because one person can control and and eliminate a hundred percent of your income it's an interesting way to frame it like i okay, I want to get paid for my time so by working so option one, I can build a business and have a whole bunch of clients where if anyone fires me, I will lose that one client's income or I can hook myself to basically one client my boss. And if my one client fires me, I lose a hundred percent of my income. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating way to reframe the concept of what's, what's risky to your income versus not. Cause as a business owner, let's say I have 20 clients, but one of them covers, let's say 50% of my pay that 50% of my income is coming from a single client. And then the other 50% is split the other 19 ways. I would be Every business owner listening to this would be solely focused on diversifying their income away from the, the potential that that one client could quit and tank your business. And we don't think about our personal life in, in terms of just a job as a, as a business to manage. But if you frame it as you're a business owner, even though you're an employee, but you're a business owner of yourself and you have a single client that is paying 100% of your income that is a really high risk proposition. So, and, and I don't want to pretend that, that there's not a lot more that comes with entrepreneurship, which we could talk about and that it's some easy, low risk road. It's not that it's just that, that our, the way we were trained as kids, the way we were trained growing up on, on risk when it comes to career blew up in my face. And I needed to sort of reassess it for myself in order to be comfortable with the fact that ultimately I decided you know, that I wanted to go out on my own and do my own thing. And, and how was I going to make that work? And, and maybe this will kind of lead into it. But I mean, obviously, I think the, the other piece that jumps out at me for and, and I'm sure for a bunch of people that are listening to the podcast and maybe and maybe thinking about one of these leaps is, yeah, but when I get the job, uh, you know, 100% of my income may be at risk for my boss, but I get 100% of my income now. And <laughs> when I go and do the entrepreneurial leap, I voluntarily take my income to zero, right? It's like, good news, you can't fire me. Bad news, because I walked away from it. So, like, haha, you can't break up with me because I'm, I'm dumping you first kind of thing. So, 
I mean, what did that transition look like for you? Did you have savings? Were you were you like married and and relying on the spouse's income? Like, how how do you make this transition as a twenty five year old, eighteen months out of school? Who I'm I'm going to presume, correct me if I'm wrong, like you didn't have a lot of time to build up a big res- reserve for your entrepreneurial transition here. No, I didn't. I had spent my first couple of years paying down student loans because I did graduate with about $40,000 in student loans. So I had been focused on paying down debt. I didn't really have any savings. And if there's one thing I can tell folks is do not do what I did financially. I should have gone and gotten a job. At the time, I found a way to make it work. But I think at the time I had $8,000 in the bank was, was all the savings I had sort of outlined what it was going to take for me to start a firm and uh, looked up the uh, the Garrett Planning Network. So mad props to Cheryl, who helped me get my firm launched. But their first year's fees were like eleven dollars or $13,000 or something like that. And so what I did was I, I sort of worked out what's it going to take for me financially. So you have two sides. You have how do you, main, how do you keep the business financials down, but then how do you keep your personal expenses down in a way that's manageable? And so I moved out of my two-bedroom renovated loft with granite countertops and stainless steel appliances into a studio apartment that was 400 square feet. Literally, my bed was butted up to the kitchen. And I have, (laughs) it's funny to think about, in the last five years, I have never moved back into an apartment as nice as the one that I left to start my own firm. Uh, One, you realize you don't need it. You know, and two, it just didn't didn't work for me. But the so I, I focused on how do I get my personal expenses in order, and I cut my personal budget by fifty percent, literally overnight. Got rid of the apartment, got rid of a bunch of stuff, cut a bunch of bills, and just trimmed down super deep. Which is the only reason I made it was because I didn't have really high overhead on the personal side. Well, and, and I think it's an important thing to note because I you know I talk to so many people that are thinking about launching an advisory firm, either they're, either they're career changers coming in or, or even they're, they're people in the industry that have been an employee but want to go out on their own. And, and you know, the, the common refrain is always, it's so expensive to start an advisory firm. And you know, the common always I have is like, it, it's really not the, like, the licensing, the startup costs, the you know, getting a website done and, and getting you know, CRM and financial planning software and all that stuff. Like it doesn't cost that much. I mean, I know a lot of people that have done that for five or $10,000 in the light end, maybe $15,000 at the, at the high end. And I mean, I realize that's not, that's not chump change. That's not nothing. But I also have some friends who have started restaurants and like that's 50 to a hundred grand just to like get space and leases and fit out the place and buy the industrial ovens and the the furniture and all the like just the physical stuff you need to run the business and you know for a bunch of them like I mean they'll say to me it's how it costs how little to start an advisory business I mean they're they're stunned by how cheap it is uh, relative to most other businesses but the thing that buries most people, it's it's not the cost to start the business. It's the cost to maintain your personal lifestyle to which you're accustomed while you're not yet earning the income. It's, it's the personal lifestyle expenses that, that bury most startup advisory firms. It's not the business expenses. You've got it. Like I said, I, I had $8,000, wanted to join Garrett. And so what I did, what their their fee structure was like five thousand up front, and then six hundred a month or something like that. 
for the first years and then dropped to 200 a month after that. So I called my dad who makes pretty good living. And so I said, dad, I, I need a loan to start the business. Here's my business plan. Uh, I said, instead of, I don't need $12,000 today. What I need is a thousand dollars a month. Cause what I assumed was that it would be very painful for him to write me a $12,000 check, but writing me a thousand dollar a month check not so bad. You were cash flowing it for him. That's very considerate of you. You were a very considerate borrower. <laughs> that was it. He agreed. And so in the first of the month, I got $1,000 in my bank. And you know that basically paid to keep the lights on. So I, I did get a small office because I was living in a studio. So uh, meeting with clients in my home was not really an option. And so I, I got a very a single room office in a office building across the street. And that $1,000 kept the lights on. And so you know, from a financial standpoint, after about I believe, six months, I was able to turn off him sending me the $1,000 a month. And 18 months into my business, I actually paid him back for the, the 6000 plus interest that had accumulated. So who, like, where were you getting clients? Who were you, who were you working with? Because I guess, I mean, you, you got some clients going pretty quickly then if you were able to to wean off the wean off the loan payments and then repay it after after 18 months and and still be able to pay the rest of your bills as well. So where where did where did business come from? Like what were you doing? I was again very lucky. The summer I was starting my business. So I made the decision I was going to start in May. I launched in August. I was 2 months short of of experience at my CFP, but I was still enrolled in college because I had not written my thesis yet. <laughs> So I was still paying college tuition, but I wrote it that summer while I was launching my business. So I, I got it knocked out by August. But what I knew is that if I could do an internship for two hours of credit for college coursework, you actually get two months of work experience towards the CFP. So I called up Kristen Harrod. She owned V2V Financial, which was new parent finance, and she's a niche marketing guru. And so she actually let me virtually intern with her that summer. So uh, not only did I get a, a cool internship opportunity in the credit, I learned a lot about marketing from her and I promptly ignored everything she taught and launched a firm called Serenity Financial Consulting. And my, by, my byline or by about me was I serve individuals, families, you know, regardless of income and net worth. So you, you worked for a niche marketing expert and then promptly launched a non-niche business. And ignored everything she taught me. And, and that should have been my detriment. Like, honestly, it, that should have been it. But I got very lucky that I took a little bit of initiative and called around to the local NAPFA firms that were in the area and met with all of them and said, here's who I am. Here's what I'm doing. This is who I serve. And one in particular, I met with Paula Hogan, who is a well-known NAPFA member, was just north of me. And I sat down and said, Paula, you know, I'm a young, young planner breaking into the industry. I'm fee only. I'm a NAPFA. I'm a fiduciary. I'm a CFP. I believe in all of the same things. I just work with a different type of client. And come to find out, I'll work with anybody. And she works with people that she had a $10,000 fee minimum or a 1 million assets under management minimum. So she had a lot of prospects calling her that she, that weren't qualified to, to work with her. And I will tell you that for most fee-only advisors, telling someone, I'm sorry, you're not rich enough to get access to a financial planner is not a happy conversation because we got into this business to help people, but to turn them away because they're not financially healthy and they're not rich kind of hurts. But from a business perspective, there comes a point at which you may have to. And she was at that, at that position. And so she started sending me leads and I got, I believe, 12 clients in my first year just from prospects or from referrals that Paula sent me. 
you built your business on castoffs. <laughs> they were fantastic clients for you and not a fit for where her business was at the stage that she was at. Yeah. I mean, one of her castoffs had $400,000 in investable assets. I mean, so, so we're not talking about like bankrupt clients that she was just trying to pot off. Like these were amazing clients for me, but for her, for every $400,000 client she worked with, that was one less $5 million client she could work with. And it was, so it was just a natural partnership. You know, I hope one day I could pay back what, what she gave me, which was she made my business work. But that being said, in November, so I launched in August, spent more money than I expected because I had to have a Keurig coffee maker in my office because who brews pots of coffee anymore, <laughs> spent a little too much money. And I, I ran out of money in November. Okay. Just despite, despite loans from, from dad coming in. Yeah, it just wasn't enough. I, I had under projected some of my just various costs. So I knew that at the first of the month, I was not going to either be able to pay rent on my apartment or rent on the office, just the way the numbers were, were going to work out. Kind of freaked out and then pulled myself together. <laughs> so, you know, like, here it is. So, you know, either I, I make a go of this and I figure this out, or I'm going to go back and get that, you know, $60,000 job that is out there, I hope. Two things happened. The Financial Review Board, the FSB, which owns the the rights to the CFP program internationally, sent out a request for people to review their program materials. They offered to pay like $50 an hour to do it. And another planner out of Texas, Gene Keener, sent out a request looking for a virtual pair planner. And I grabbed them both as quickly as I could and got the money as quickly as I could. Those two checks came in literally days before I was, I was slated to run out of money. And those, those two checks kept the lights on long enough for the next couple of months for me to get to the first of the year, which is the, when I have always experienced the biggest pop in business respective clients. And so it got me, it held long, long enough for me to get to that point and then sort of New Year's resolution clients started showing up and was able to start cash flowing positive again. It's funny the the pinches that we go through sometimes in in early stages of business. We had Ron Carson on for the second episode of the podcast and you know today runs a multi multi billion dollar firm, I think four, four and a half billion dollars under management under the umbrella and a number of related businesses that have been very successful. He you know, recently did a venture capital round, I think sold off something like 20 or 30% of his business for 20 or $30 million. He was talking about the early days and how, you know, after, after his first six years in the business, he still hadn't broken $30,000 of gross revenue in sales. And, and that was at a broker dealer. So that was $30,000 of GDC, which means even if he was trying to get to 30,000, like he was probably only keeping half of that. So six years to get to. $15,000 a year of take-home revenue gross before business expenses. Fast forward another 25 or 30 years and it's a $100 million business. Even a story I'd seen recently of the early days of Raymond James. Apparently, Raymond James was so stricken in the market downturn in the 73-74 bear market crash. Apparently, the only way they kept going at the time was Tom James sold his personal coin collection to have enough money to keep the business going to make it through the the 73-74 bear market crash and then obviously it recovered well thereafter. Always fascinating to me like the the pinches that sometimes businesses go through in the early days. 
You know, and I, I, if you read the book Delivering Happiness from Zappos with Tony Shea there, he did the same thing. I mean, basically sold everything in order to make it work. Elon Musk trying to get Tesla up and running after he sold, after he made like $150 million off PayPal, sunk every penny into Tesla, SpaceX, and Solar City, almost went bankrupt and had to take out a personal loan from some buddies to pay rent for a while. So, There's a Steve Jobs quote that I absolutely love, and it's, if you look more closely, most overnight successes took a really long time. And I think that that is so true of what we do. And and I want to, you know, and I try my best because we tend to remember positive experiences. I try my best to talk about the, the, the tough side as well because it can look easy. And I remember being very frustrated looking at other planners thinking like, gosh, they've done it so easy. Jude Boudreau is a great example. He was sort of somebody who had started his business like three to four years before I had, and I was following in his footsteps and like, you know, sort of idolizing him and the way he was building his business. And then if you ever go and actually talk to Jude or listen to his story, it was anything but easy. Now he made it look easy, but he had a incredible experience over the course of building his business. And so I, I encourage folks to know when you're getting on the this this journey of entrepreneurship, a roller coaster does not even describe what it is because emotionally it's just incredible how challenging it can be. You know, but if there's one recommendation I have for folks that are going to get on that roller coaster is do it with someone else. You need a, a study group, a mastermind group, whatever you want to call it, of three to five of your closest friends that are doing the same thing you are. You need a spouse or significant other that is fully bought into what you're doing because it is really hard because there will come a day where you will wake up and you're going to have the moment I had of, I can't pay rent. And I'll tell you, if somebody's talking in your ear, like I told you you were going to fail, I told you couldn't do it, Alan, you know, there's no way you're going to be able to do this. You need to go get a job. I may not have been able to come through that, but having surrounded myself with the right people, I was able to sort of keep that frame of mind, just power through, figure it out. Just sort of my mantra at this point, just like, I don't know, I'll figure it out. Which of those did you do? Like, did you have all of those? Did you have a study group? Did you have supporting spouse, other things? Like, what what was your path to navigate those ups and downs? Yeah, early on, uh, it, it was just groups of friends. So, I was on the Napogenesis board at the time. And so, Dave Grant was one that uh, he was the president of Next, or of Genesis. And he was looking at launching his own firm. I'm trying to remember who else was on that board with us. And, and that was sort of that, that group to sort of lament with and just sort of talk about things with. And then later on, I ended up forming or being asked to join a study group that ultimately ended up sort of changing my career path. But for the better, yeah, you just got to surround yourself with the right people and just keep a positive frame of mind. But we will, you will forever have chicken little moments <laughs> where you are running around thinking the sky is falling. Whether it is or not is irrelevant. Your brain thinks it is. So how did the business move forward from there? You survived the first year, some combination of the so-called cast-off clients from advisors that were that were further along. You're filling the income on the side with whatever side things you can get. You've got a loan that you're finally working through. So what did it look like once you got into year two and beyond? Yeah, things after about the first year, things just started working for me. I was able to start paying myself a salary that was pretty close to my pre-getting fired salary. The income was coming in, the clients were there, working with them and and just all of that. And just sort of everything was going well. Where were they coming from at that point? Like, are you doing local marketing? Are you doing like networking groups? Are you just racking up more more planners like 
Paula Hogan sending you referrals. Yeah, Paula Hogan type folks kind of started getting on the speaking scene at NAPFA conferences and, and getting on panels and talking about my experience working with younger clients, having a little different service and fee structure, different service models. So random planners would send me their cousin, you know, especially younger planners be like, oh, my, my cousin's been looking for a financial planner. And we can't work with them because we have million dollar minimums. Alan uses technology and works virtually, so he should be able to work with you. I got a bunch of referrals from planners. So you almost ended out with a little niche of like, I'm a young planner that works with young people. I'm not just going to take my local cast-offs. I'll take any cast-offs from anyone across the country. <laughs> Pretty much. Anyone that will fog a mirror or a webcam. It's an interesting point though that, again, like you can make a successful business off of almost any kind of niche or focus if you just have one, and including even – I'm the planner that takes all the young clients with less money than what all the other planners take who tend to work with some older clients that have more money. Like even that's a valid niche that you can build a business off of. Now, I will say I, I did start to develop a niche, just never got around to really branding to it and marketing to it, which we'll talk about, but that you know was working with younger clients, generally in their 30s, that were looking at starting a service-based business. So I had orthodontists, dentists, a couple of lawyers, a couple of doctors that were looking at starting their own business. And I loved those clients. Those were the ones that excited me the most to have meetings with because we didn't just talk about personal finance. We talked about should they establish a defined benefit plan or profit sharing plan or a simple for their business. We almost got into business planning. You know, I'm showing them how to do QuickBooks. We're talking marketing strategies. Should the dentist buy iPads and put them in the waiting room to do data intake or should he have forms that his assistant, you know, puts into the into the computer. So I almost became like a business coach. Yeah, I was gonna say like kind of business coaching practice management. Yeah. Which is which I realized that's what was fun for me. So then about a year and a half in, you know, I, as I'm building my business, I one thing was very early on, I made a lot of phone calls to a lot of different people like Jude Boudreau and Caleb Brown with New Planner Recruiting and those types of folks. And, and everyone took my phone call. And I was so thankful for that because I learned just incredible amounts of information from those folks. And so I committed that when someone called me, I was going to pick up the phone. You know, young advisors would reach out to me and say, Alan, how did you do compliance? You know, how are you getting your clients? What CRM did you select? What, you know, all of these various questions. And after about 18 months of being in business, this would have been, you know, December of 13, I looked back at my calendar and I'd had 100 one-hour phone calls with young planners. 100. And I was happy to do it, but I was getting a little overwhelmed with it. And I was like, what is the commonality here? All of these young planners want to know how to start their own business because there are, many of them were sitting inside of failed succession plans. They were promised you know, equity in five years. And then in five years, the boss doesn't want to have the conversation. They have a niche they really want to serve. They have a passion for serving some particular client that doesn't meet their current firm standards. And so I got this crazy idea and I emailed this guy, you may have heard of him named Michael Kitsis. And, and I was like, Hey dude, like I think we may have a business idea here that we could help people that want to start their own business. Like, I think, I think there's something here. You mean like help advisors who want to start businesses? That was the the impetus for, again, just sort of a colossal career change that, you know, my original idea was actually much more scaled down than what we ended up doing just through conversations saying, hey, you said, here's what you're seeing. I said, here's what I'm seeing in the conversations. You know, let's pull together a group and sort of see what happens. And so that was December of 13. 
And then I had to make the decision. I could see the writing on the wall that things were going to get busy with XY. And I was, you were busy. So I knew I was going to be running things. That was sort of our agreement. So I was going to be sort of doing the day-to-day operations. And so I actually made a very good call, thankfully, in like March that I was not going to take any more clients for a while until I saw sort of what XY Planning Network did to be sure I just didn't overwhelm myself. And so in April, you know, four months later, launched XY Planning Network. Yeah, it just sort of went from there. And off it went. And the and the rest is history. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's funny now to look back on how not that long, not that long ago it was. You know, we're, we're still not three years out from the launch, which was April of 2014. And now as we look back, what is it, where are we at? 365 advisors, I think, 366 advisors, roughly $5,000 a year. So, I mean, you can People can kind of do the math on what the revenue is for the business and a dozen staff members and like it, it's business. There's a, there's a lot of a lot of people. I, ironically, now we're, you're you're on the other end of that. You're the boss that has the other people's income control. But we but we're, we try to be very very good to our XYPN team. Yeah, I mean, I'll say that when we started XYPN, I thought it was going to be a side gig. You know, we're going to have twenty thirty planners. That it was a cool community thing and. We helped out and maybe I made a little bit of money. I mean, the original business projection was to try to get like 10 or 20 in the first three months and then add add one or two a month thereafter. So, I mean, I think on the original business projection, we still wouldn't be at 100 advisors now after three years. We would have been at like 70 or 80 by now. Now, we'll say that is largely indicative of for all the listeners out there of Michael's personality, which is, you know, increasing growth rates. No, no, straight line to a month. But no, we just I didn't know the marketplace. I, I knew there was a marketplace, just didn't realize just how pent up, how much pent up energy there was among younger advisors that said, I want to serve my peers. I want to do it in a fee-only way. You know, because when I started my business, a very reputable person that I trusted and, and was a friend called me and said, Alan, you cannot, you will not be successful as a fee-only advisor. You're 25, young people don't pay for planning, go get your series seven start selling. It's the only way to make money off young people. And I credit that person a lot because when times got tough, there's nothing I love more than winning. And I would think back to that quote, you will not be successful and thought, I will show you. I'm going to prove that, that this can be done. So you build a business just to spite him or her. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I was already building it, but it's good to know what your motivators are. But what I didn't realize is how many people are out there that are experiencing that. I just, I was at the T3 conference and, uh, you know, earlier this month, a young lady walked up to me, a Utah Valley student, and she, and she saw my shirt because if anybody sees me, I'm running around XY Planning Network t-shirt. And she said, XY, do you work with young people? I mean, she had no idea who I was. And I was like, yeah, you know, we have a business that, that works with young people. Like, why do you ask? And she's like, I've had this idea that I could do planning for young people. But I've talked to three or four different advisory firms in the area and they all say it can't be done. Young people don't pay for planning. And of course, I'm fired up. I'm like, you give me their name. I will call them right now because I thought we were past this, but we're not. We have a long way to go. But I just didn't realize that the marketplace, the number of people that were out there that were experiencing the same angst that I was that just didn't know what they didn't know. There's no book on compliance that tells you how to manage all the various regulations and, and all of that, and just how many failed succession plans there are out there. I mean, that 
there's just such a huge group of, lack of a better phrase, I mean, just the pissed off associate advisors that were sold a bill of goods. They were sold an unsigned succession contract that's never going to come due. And they're realizing it. They're realizing it that, that the old guard isn't actually going to sell their firm. One, because they, they have an emotional attachment to their firm. And two, financially, it just makes no sense for older people to sell their firm when you can just hold on to it and keep making money. It's like the greatest lifetime annuity ever. Selling and succession planning works when either A, you really want to be out. Just some people are done. If you're done, tap out, sell. There are people who will buy. Work, works fine. And it works when businesses are growing because, of course, the when everybody's participating in a growing pie, it's easier to sell, even, even if from the business owner's end, because you're going to sell a piece of your business, but you're going to have a smaller piece of a larger pie. So, you know, last episode, we had Eric Heyman from Austin Asset, who was talking about, you know, the fact that also as, as a, a, a young guy in his mid-20s, he had an opportunity to buy into the founder's firm. And the founder let him buy in at one time's revenue. And, and, you know, there are a bunch of people that are saying like, what, like, what idiot, you know, sells to a, a 25 year old at one time's revenue? And it's like, oh, well, you know, over the next 10 years, the business grew 30 X, literally. You, you let him have a slice at one time's revenue. You know, you, he got 10% of it at one time's revenue and then had such an ownership stake that was meaningful for him. That he put his full energy into growing it and your other 90% grew 30x in the meantime. Let's kind of do the math if you came out ahead. But it's that dynamic that when, when the business is growing, it's very effective to sell pieces of the business to the next generation. It incentivizes them to continue the ball rolling on growth. And if you do that well, everybody wins. Their stake gets bigger that they own, so they feel rewarded for their growth. And your stake gets bigger as the founder or the, or the original owner or the primary owner. So you finish with a smaller piece of a larger pie and you're still, you're still moving forward. It's still positive. But for so many firms that are going through these succession plans, I find they're, they're not selling. They're not because they're not growing. So if the business isn't growing, every piece you, you sell is just a piece of that lifetime annuity stream that goes away and doesn't get replaced. So it doesn't feel good to sell. So you don't sell unless you really, really have to. The good news about the advisory business is it's not exactly intensive manual labor as long as the the mind is willing and the body is at all able to sit in a meeting for an hour or two. You can do this until your 80s or beyond. And a lot of people are going to do it. And and honestly, that's it will probably continue to be a you know an impetus for our growth. Because I will tell you that, you know, there were a lot of advisors, folks that make snide comments to us or to me about, you know, poaching younger advisors and you know, out just sort of rating the young talent. And I will tell you, we don't have to do a bit of rating. Existing firms do a wonderful job of pissing off their associate advisors that I don't have to go in and convince them that this is a better way. They get convinced all on their own and then go looking for answers. And we just happen to be where, you know, hopefully where they're looking for those answers. But I, I do think it's important with XY Planning Network to, you know, in terms of sort of, again, the growth of XY Planning Network has made it look easy from the outside. And sometimes I get lulled into it that, that it's been an easy road. You know, we've just sort of grown. And so just a couple of notes on that, because I think it's important to say. Yeah. It's so like you, you just finally started a business and then $2 million of revenue showed up in the first three years. So like it's easy, right? 
So one thing, and this is for any advisor out there that is thinking about getting into the advisor-facing space, so moving from B2C to B2B and doing both, I am not aware of anyone that does B2B and B2C well. Almost everyone, everyone that I can think of that, that did both for a time, Bill Winneberg, Caleb Brown, you, me, Kristen Herod, Marty Kurtz with the Planning Center when he launched First Step. All of these folks, I just lost the name, Did uh, created IPS Pro from Mosaic. Uh, Norm, Norm Boone. Norm Boone. Boone. All of us had to make a choice. And my choice came in the summer of 2015. So we had been in business about a year and a half when we got our 100th member. It was the day that a client called me because I still had my RA. Client called me. A member called me. And I returned the member uh, phone call and not the client's phone call till the next day. And that was the moment that I realized that I was no longer the best advisor for my clients and I was going to have to make a choice. How big was the business at that point? I had around 20 clients left. So one, I had over the time, I had sort of culled back the number of clients I was working with. And not all of those were on retainer because I had originally started out doing hourly project work. So I had about 20 relationships and so it wasn't a big book. I should have been able to manage it. But from just a focus perspective and prioritization of who gets my energy and time, I met the crossroads, you know, again, about a year and a half in. And so I encourage advisors that get pulled into things that are advisor facing, be wary because you will make a choice. I'm not aware of anyone that really does both and does it really well. And so I ended up selling my practice to J.D. Bruce with Abacus Wealth out in California, which was one of the best decisions I, I've made just because it, it did free me to, you know, focus on X, Y, which, you know, came at a good time because after that, we sort of started seeing even faster growth rates. So as you look back, I'm curious over the past couple of years then, you know, how has the picture changed from, from your end? You know, you went from prior businesses where you were working in the business that ha- in businesses that had five to 10 employees, then you were solo for a couple of years now, suddenly three years later, you're on the other end with a team of 12 plus growing quickly and, and you're the boss and you're, you're on the other end of that conversation now. I'm curious what it's like for you in, in terms of how the experience of running a business has evolved. Painfully. <laughs> it has been an extremely painful process to go from solopreneur where you get to do everything. And that's what I love about starting businesses is I get to do everything. I get to make all the decisions just to get in, get things done. I don't have to ask someone else to do it and then wait three days or three weeks for them to get it done. Just sort of get to do everything. My I have my thumb on the pulse of everything to suddenly I don't have the pulse of anything because my team is the, the member-facing team. And they're the ones that are actually bringing in the information and, and managing managers. I will tell you that when you start a business and, and I have friends and, and some of our advisors will say, you know, Alan, I want to make, I want to scale. I'm going to make $500,000 next year or a million dollars in three years. And I just have to tell you, be very, very careful what you wish for. Because if you scale a business to a million dollars in revenue, you are no longer a financial planner. You are a business owner. And that did not clue in for me until, you know, we were probably a year and a half into running XY and I was miserable. We were growing. Things were fine. We just had our first conference. We were riding a high off of that. And I was just not having fun to the point that I actually, as upset with me as you got, 
made the, actually applied for a position at the University of Illinois to be their director of financial planning, <laughs> which now is slightly amusing. We had about 130 members and we were sort of growing, but I was just not enjoying the work anymore. I was just managing team members and trying to you know, learn how to not be the one who makes all the decisions, the one who has all the answers. Like you, you have to learn management techniques and, and none of that I was prepared for. And so fortunately, University of Illinois never called me back. So if any U of I people are listening, good, you know, thank you for not calling me. <laughs> I sort of came out of that. And then February of 2015 hit. Oh, I'm sorry, 2016. Do you remember what happened in February of 2016? I've got a vague recollection. <laughs> it was our first ever net zero growth month. 12 members, and for various reasons, 12 members in one month emailed us to leave the network. I think we had 100 and, I don't know, 150 members at this point. So lose, we lost 10% of our revenue within, I mean, it, it, it all came in within about a week. And I lost it. I was like chicken little running around. I told you this was going to happen. The business was never going to work. It wasn't sustainable. They figured out that we're not providing value or not doing a good job. All the things you say as a business owner to yourself when, when you're anxious and worried. And then as soon as someone leaves you, it's like, oh, God, it's all coming to an end. It was all done. And I, and I just remember freaking out. And then we took a step back and said, okay, why did the 12 people leave? We'll come find it. It was 12, like completely different reasons. Like one got bought out, three just decided not to launch firms, very legitimate things. And, and oh, by the way, we also brought on 12 new members. <laughs> and so it was actually a, a revenue neutral you know, month. And that sort of sparked the conversation of like, it, well, one, I remember it took forever to get the data on the 12 that joined and the 12 that left. And that sort of sparked the conversation on, hey, you know what? I think we need a COO. Like, I think we actually need someone to come in here and manage the company because Alan clearly is not doing the world's best manager and it's just not my skill set. I'm not, you know, Alan's not having fun anymore, kind of miserable to the point of applying for a, a salaried position. And so we ended up bringing- The very in, thing you were running away from in the first place. <laughs> I know, right? It, it, in retrospect now, it's hilarious, but at the time it was not. And so we brought in Raul in, in May of 2016. So he's been with the team, you know, coming up on a year now. And that was the switch for me. And that's when we came out of like business ownership hell, which is where I was and I was just miserable to my quality of life is 10 times better now than it was before we hired him. And we have a rock star And in the meantime, team. the business literally has more than doubled in the past year. Yep. And I will say we have a rock star team. It has nothing to do with the fact that any of our team was underperforming or anything like that. I was just not doing what I loved doing anymore. And by hiring Raul, I was able to hand off a lot of the stuff that was his skill set and what he is gifted at and things I could never learn to do if it was my job for, for my entire career and let me sort of get back into doing the things I love doing. And that was just so unbelievably critical for me. And who knows, you may be the entrepreneur out there that's like, I love the operations and management. Please don't make me do like the partnership relations and, you know, the business development and strategy and new initiatives. Fine, go hire that person. That was me. That's what I love doing. So I went and hired the operations process leadership guy. And that's really what I think, you know, if we're sitting here in 10 years and continue to see success, we may look back at various waypoints and, and hiring a COO and hiring professional management will be one that... I think we'll look at and go like, 
that was the moment running XYPN became fun again. I think there's a really powerful message in that for what I suspect are a lot of advisors in in their businesses that are struggling at this point where it's it's not fun anymore. And and I find it it happens so much in our industry, particularly since the whole industry has been shifting to the the AUM model over the past ten or fifteen years. Because the effect that happens is I mean, the, the glorious thing about AUM from building a business perspective is that it's recurring revenue. And so, and clients tend to be very, very sticky. Like bad firms have 85 to 90% retention rates. Good firms have like 95 to 98% retention rates. And so, what that means is if you're at all capable in business development and you can wait out the tough early years, you just start accruing and accumulating revenue. And then eventually, at some point after a couple of years, you wake up. It's like I can pay all my bills and I even got profits left over and I even got enough money left over to actually hire someone and take some stuff off my plate. And so you start hiring and then you hire a few people and the team gets a little bigger and maybe you, you delegate a couple of things that you don't like. And then that works for a while. But if you if you keep bringing in clients, the thing keeps getting bigger. And, and you know there there's this wall that you hit where you can get a couple of employees that are kind of like the doctor with nurses like you can get a couple of nurses around you and and really leverage the value of your time and be a little more productive and delegate some things that you probably shouldn't be doing as a business owner but if it gets much bigger than that by the time you get to about 5 to 7 people and especially when you start getting up towards 8 to 10 you hit a wall where the reality is most of your time is just spent managing all the people that have accrued around you because of all the clients that have accrued in the business. And for so many advisors, I find like you get away with, from the thing that you liked doing originally, which was seeing clients or prospects, turning them into clients or just working with clients on an ongoing basis. And you're stuck in this, what for a lot of people is, is management hell because it wasn't, you didn't set out to build a business and manage people. Uh, you set out to be a financial advisor and help people and, and, and freeing yourself from that. I mean, making that decision, that transitionary decision of I've got to hire not just more assistance to support me. I've got to hire a business manager. I've got to hire a COO. I've got to hire, I've got to bring on a partner who wants to do that side of the business so that I can get back to the stuff that I enjoy is a brutally challenging transition, but an absolutely crucial one. It is. What makes us great entrepreneurs, or I don't even great, I don't mean that to sound conceited. It's just the, the skill set that comes with being an entrepreneur and being able to get businesses off the ground doesn't necessarily lend itself to being the best CEO. And so if you look at pretty much any major company out there, the founder is rarely at the top of the company, or if they are, like with a Mark Zuckerberg at, at Facebook, he has a COO that actually runs the whole thing. You know, he's not actually doing management, but it's a hard thing to let go of. But you're absolutely right. That's the it's the business hell when you're running a successful business and you're miserable. And so for for the advisors out there that want to scale, I, I want to caution you and, and be sure you answer the question why. Because if it's for ego or to prove someone else wrong or anything like that, that is a really bad idea. If you want to grow a real business and run a real business, excellent. But when you run a business, it is a whole different set of skills that you don't know. And you have to learn on the job, which is 
tough. But, you know, fortunately, we got to that point where we could hire that management. We made the right call to do so. And, and again, just been so amazing since. And, you know, and, and it's worth knowing, you don't have to, you don't have to do the growth path. We, we had Matthew Jarvis on in episode seven. People can go download if they want at kids.com slash seven. Matthew is in his mid thirties. He built a lifestyle practice with a million dollars of revenue. He sustained something like a 50% profit margin on the business. And he takes 83 days of vacation a year and he's hardly growing at this point. And he doesn't want to and he doesn't care because he's making incredibly fantastic money and living the lifestyle he wants and spending the time with his family that he wants. And he's not interested in growing a big business because he's got just a fantastic lifestyle practice. And and it's a cool thing because you can do that in this business in the world of financial advising. But if you don't have a plan for it, if you don't have a vision of what you want to build, so many advisors I find, they, they get stuck in a trap where it just accrues larger than they meant for it to be. And then they've got all these people that have to be around to handle it. And they're stuck doing all the managementy stuff that they don't really want to do anymore. And so if you hit that crossroads, like you've really only got two choices. You, you either have to hire through it. You have to hire your CEO or take on a partner, find a way to, to let go of that stuff. Or you've got to make the deliberate decision the other end to say, I don't want to actually have this thing be so big. So I'm going to fire some clients or fire some staff or sell off a portion of the business or, or spin it off or whatever you've got to do to downsize it back down or right size it back down. Because if you don't, you just stuck in a business you're miserable in. Yep. I couldn't agree more. And so that's the, the cautionary tale of, of running a business that, you know, just be sure you know the vision, know where you're headed, know what you're looking to do because the decisions that you make will be very different. If we plan to stay at 360 advisors Every decision that we make right now would be different. But our, you know, our goal is we want to have a thousand advisors in three years. So the decisions that we make are, are laying the foundation to have a thousand advisors in three years, not 360. The truth is we could probably personally take home just as much money if we stayed at 360 as if we go to a thousand because it's not like you triple revenue and don't triple expenses. But we're, we believe in the mission and I believe in. You know, I have a hundred X mindset that if I can help a thousand advisors each help a hundred clients, I mean, we're we're having this hundred thousand impact on the world where we we can bring financial planning to a hundred thousand people that never would have been able to access a financial advisor before, and so that's what gets me up in the morning. So it drives me, and so the mission is still what drives me. Uh, now the work I actually do is also what drives me. And and it's a hard thing to get to. And I'm not, there's no cheat sheet or like shortcut to that. We were probably lucky that we grew through that painful process pretty quickly. Because if I had had to sit in it for five years, would not have worked out well. So we were able to get through it fast enough that I didn't keep applying to jobs. Yeah, it's just something to be aware of for the for the folks looking to scale out there. As we wrap up here, this is a show about success and paths to success. And and Kind of riffing on that last theme, you know, one of the things I've long observed is that the whole idea of success and what you're shooting for means very different things to different people. So as someone who has built what I think most would objectively call a successful business at this point, a couple million dollars revenue in, in less than three years, I'm curious from your end, like how do you define success? It's a good question because uh, my definition of success has changed over time. You know, when I, I launched my 
RIA, I was going to be a lifestyle practice guy. I was going to work 10 to 15 hours a week with 20 clients once I groomed 20 millionaires and, and it was just going to be me. And that that has slowly shifted over time. And I'll say that at this point, success is that I get to feed my family and I, I the bills are paid. I don't have a very lavish lifestyle, but I make enough to sort of keep food on the table, but that that we actually make a change in the industry. I think that we are uniquely positioned and, you know, whether we got there by chance or, or intentional, I'd say more by chance, but I think we're at the forefront of this catalyst that that could literally reshape the face of financial services in the independent space. And so I think success for me now is seeing that what we're building towards actually has the effect that I think it can. And that we truly see this this shift in financial planning towards being able to work with clients of all income levels, being able to work virtually and, and running a lifestyle business and fiduciary advice and, and moving away from sales and sort of all of the various components that, that XY is all about. So, you know, it's sort of a intangible thing at this point. But I think once you sort of meet your financial needs, then it becomes sort of what gets you up in the morning. And honestly, that's what excites me now. And I think there's a powerful message in that. It's a theme that we've heard from a lot of our guests that there's kind of this transition point. Once you get to the threshold that meets kind of the core financial needs, you know, put food on my table and make sure my kids will go to college, the definition of success or what we're shooting for starts changing and it and starts shifting towards impact and legacy and and what else you leave behind since as the as the saying goes, you can't take it with you if you just make it more money. Well, thank you for joining us on the on the podcast today. This was a fun discussion, a fun journey. Well, thanks for having me on. And for anyone out there listening, best of luck on your journey because this podcast, the hearing the highs, but hearing the lows, it's good to know. It's not that I want to be discouraging. I want it to be realistic. So you're more prepared than I was for this addictive roller coaster called entrepreneurship that honestly, I don't know if I could ever give up at this point. Amen. I think you're probably at the point now that we can we can safely call you unemployable. I don't I don't know if you can go back to being an employee at this point. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.